This is Construction Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association's Forum on Construction Law. Construction Law Today is a podcast about current topics in American construction law. Your host for Construction Law Today is Buzz Tarlow. Our podcast, Construction Law Today, began in July 2019 and is now in its second season. In our first year, we produced 14 episodes on a variety of what we hope were timely and interesting topics in the field of construction law. In our upcoming season, we hope to produce similar podcasts at the rate of about one new podcast per month. As always, we welcome your questions and comments. Please let us know what you think we can do to improve the podcast. The contact information for Construction Law Today is found at the end of this podcast. On behalf of the American Bar Association's Forum on Construction Law, thanks for listening. Welcome to the podcast. In March 2021, the American College of Construction Lawyers held its annual meeting. At that meeting, two of the fellows of the college, Barbara Werther and Robbie McPherson, a former chair of the ABA Forum on Construction Law, introduced and presented an intriguing and insightful interview with three accomplished Black lawyers. The presentation offered a remarkable perspective on the important issues of diversity and inclusion in construction law practice. Barbara Werther is with us today, and after my discussion with her about the program that she presented, Our podcast will feature her interview with these lawyers in its entirety. Good morning, Barbara, and thanks so much for being with us. Good morning, Buzz. Thank you for having me. Before we talk about this exceptional interview, share with us a little about your background and career. Sure. So I grew up in the Philadelphia suburbs. I went to college at the University of Pennsylvania and then law school at GW in Washington, D.C., and I've stayed in Washington ever since. I practice government contracts and construction law, and more recently, I've started to do quite a bit of contract drafting and negotiation. And I'm now in my own firm called Samick Werther and Mills, and I've added to my repertoire what I think will be my next career doing mediations and arbitrations. Well, tell me about your interest in diversity issues and how this interview project came into being. In 2015, I was inducted into the college and the then president asked me to chair the diversity committee. You couldn't say no to this particular person. And what became obvious right away is that we were doing sort of okay with gender diversity, but we really didn't have a large minority participation, not the kind that we should have. And so Robbie McPherson joined me as co-chair in 2020, and we've been working to develop our pipeline ever since. The reason for the panel discussion in the March 2021 annual conference also came from a different president of the college who felt that this was a very timely subject. And so Robbie and I began seeking out participants, and then we put the panel together for March. I imagine that the uh, recent deaths of George Floyd and Ahmed Arbery and um, Brianna Taylor had an influence on your thinking also? It did. It really sparked the conversation. And what was drawn to my attention, and you'll hear it in the recording of the panel discussion in March, also the Colin Kaepernick events and how he was treated by the NFL. It it was sort of a full circle conversation because he was trying to bring to the table a conversation about police brutality. And he was pretty much vilified for a long time. And so it it kind of was a full circle conversation. That's interesting because as our listeners will hear, a number of the lawyers that you talked to were quite accomplished athletes, weren't they? Yes, they're incredible people. And they, they talk about, for example, they are Division One athletes, and they're used to, we're used to practicing and getting great grades. And yet they talk about a study that was done where 
a person who had a name that was like John Smith turned in a paper and a person who had a name that was clearly a minority, a racial minority individual. And the grading of the papers, it comes back where John Smith will make it and the minority person can't come to this firm. And it was very telling to hear them speak to that because they know that they are smart and they are hardworking, but they were not treated the same. So tell us a little bit about how did you find the people that you ended up interviewing? That was actually the easiest part because the forum has done a really great job of outreach. And so I knew Lori Baggett and so did Robbie. He knew knew her even better than I did from the forum. She at the time um, was a director at Carlton Fields. She's now gone off to become, I believe, assistant general counsel at Pods, but she was the first minority on their board of directors. I also know Rashida McMurray Abdullah from the forum, but also because the Women in Construction conference that I chair, Rashida's on my board. So I've known her for years. And then Robbie brought to the table Robert Johnson, who is the chief diversity officer at his law firm, Gibbons. Well, before we listen to the presentation, Barbara, Tell us a little bit about what you learned personally and what you took away from these interviews. So there's the touchy-feely part, and then there's the what I learned part. The takeaways were really important. What I learned, especially from Robert Johnson, is that we have to be intentional in addressing bias. And then the takeaways were three. The first one, which is this is just the teaching moment is that empirical data shows a very compelling business case for diversity. That was the first point. The second point was that implicit bias is everywhere. And you'll hear our panelists admit to it themselves. Lori Baggett, for example, talks about how she just cannot tolerate millennials and she has to work on it. And finally, we have to take steps from the top down to innovate to success. And we need to recognize that it is the fact of our differences that we can make the whole better. So those are the sort of the teaching moments. But most importantly, I personally have come to, I think, a much better sensitivity and awareness of the issues that our panelists face every day. And it was so eye-opening on many levels. Well, thanks so much for that introduction. Barbara, and we'll look forward to hearing the interview in just a moment. I should add that it also really struck me when I listened to it for the first time. And so you have my personal thanks for undertaking what I think was a very important project. Well, thank you. And I know our panelists are excited that we're moving into prime time. They're really delighted that this is going to be broadcast. So thank you so much for the opportunity to do this. And again, our panelists really tell the story. I'm just the moderator. I just asked a bunch of questions. Before we begin with the interview, I'd like to take a moment now to introduce our brand new sponsor to Construction Law Today, FTI Consulting. FDI has been and continues to be an active partner of the ABA Forum on Construction Law. So let me take a minute now to personally thank FDI for becoming our podcast's first sponsor. We're very excited to have them. So first, a word from FDI and then Barbara Werther's and Robbie McPherson's presentation entitled, Take Another Look, Bias, Diversity, and Inclusion. FTI Consulting is a leading global provider of project advisory, construction claims analysis, and expert witness services. As the construction industry navigates the short and long-term impact of the pandemic, FTI Consulting is committed to continuing our longtime support of the ABA Forum on Construction Law and its members. Meet our experts at FTIConsulting.com. Now, Construction Law Today is pleased to present Take Another Look, Bias, Diversity, and Inclusion. Our listeners may want to note that this interview was originally recorded in front of a live webinar audience.
We have three fantastic panelists today who are going to discuss these difficult issues with us based on their personal experience. And they're going to provide us with some takeaways on how we can, as James Quincy, current chairman and CEO of Coca-Cola, committed on June, uh, in June of 2020, to do better toward helping end the cycle of systemic racism. So many of our two of our panelists are probably known to you because they're in the forum or have been in the forum. I'm going to ask um, Lori Baggett to introduce herself and to tell us something that no one knows. Thanks, Barbara. Uh, as Barbara said, Lori Baggett, I'm the Tampa office managing shareholder of Carlton Fields. Um, very glad to be with you. I don't know. Well, if you've re if maybe if you haven't seen my bio, so I'm a former college division one basketball player. Um, and I'm also new to the board of directors and the executive committee at Carlton Fields, which is a great new thing for our firm. And we're very proud of it. Robert, do you want to introduce yourself, please? Yes, uh, thank you. Uh, uh, Robert Johnson, I'm a partner in the corporate group at the law firm Gibbons PC. Uh, Robbie McPherson is a partner of mine. Um, you know, it's been have a specialty in M&A. I do a lot of work with early stage company seeking VC financing. And I also serve as uh, the chief diversity officer for my law firm. Rashida McMurray, are you on? I am, right? So we're only a year into the pandemic and I'm still struggling with mute. So good afternoon, everyone. I'm delighted to be here. Um, Rashida McMurray Abdullah. A previously, in a previous life, I was a construction litigator. So that's how I, um, I met Barbara initially and maybe some of you from the ABA Forum. Um, I currently serve as the first chief diversity officer for Wiley. We are a DC-based firm and we like to say we're wired in DC and we have a global reach. Um, a fun fact about me, I don't know if if Rob shared his fun fact, but fun fact about me is that um, I also was a division one uh, athlete. I ran track, the 400 hurdles. And so I now take that my talents to Peloton. Yeah, Rob, we missed you <laughs> my, on the fun fact. So please. Well, I, I, yeah, my, my, my fun fact is following Lori's lead. I, I also played uh, division one basketball at Rice University in Houston. Um, I played a couple of years professionally in France, in Poissy, in Shalom, and I was in the preseason with the Chicago Bulls and the Golden State Warriors. And it sounds cooler than what it was because I was the first person that they asked to leave and I became one. <laughs> so yeah, so um, yeah, that's my fun fact. That's super. Okay, so we're going to turn to a really serious topic. I've had the good fortune of working with this great panel. Um, for many hours now, and they asked to start this way. It was uh, something I sort of threw out, and they said, yep, we really like that idea, so, so let's do it. So we're going to set the table here. As you'll all remember, for the 2016 NFL season, Colin Kaepernick, who at the time was the quarterback for the San Francisco 49ers, he either sat or took a knee for the entire season during the playing of the national anthem. And he was protesting police brutality and racial inequality in the United States. But instead of his actions starting a conversation, which is what he intended, he was pretty much vilified by the NFL and then by Mr. Trump. But in 2020, fast forward, the murders of George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and many others served as a catalyst for many organizations stating their commitment to addressing racial injustice. So in 2019, the NFL settled with Kaepernick, but it wasn't until 2020 that Roger Goodell actually apologized to him or the NFL acknowledged that it had been wrong in 2016. So the question on the table is, why did it take the deaths in 2016 to focus the conversation? Who wants to lead off? So... <laughs> All right. I think I hit it first. Um, well, well, thanks, Barbara, for that for that lead in. And I think um, I think Rashida's got a lot of good things to say about this, too. But I think for me, um, the difference last year and I think for all of society, um, when you think about it, we had several pandemics that happened all at once. Right. We had COVID-19, obviously, which forced us all to be in our homes. We couldn't be out in concerts. We weren't out at dinner. We were all just sitting at home. Um, and most of us glued to the TV, um, whether it was watching the briefings every day or just trying to understand what was happening to our world. And then, unfortunately, we're then forced to see 
what happened to George Floyd. And I think for a large portion of this country and the world, everyone for the first time actually looked and they stopped and they paid attention. And perhaps they also were feeling vulnerable because we were far enough into the pandemic that lots of companies had shut down. Maybe people didn't, you know, a job offer that was out there, the company had to call and say, sorry, you can't come. Maybe they have underlying health conditions. And so there was a collective vulnerability that people felt and then thought, oh my gosh, is this what Black people experience? Is this what Black people feel? And maybe for the first time, people actually were experiencing it. And I think when the collective world and particularly uh, diverse from Black, so non-Black people actually stood up and said, this is wrong and took to the streets and really paid attention, then companies like the NFL um, and others had no choice but to change their stance, right? Or or the the backlash was going to be worse than it actually was. So I think it was multiple pandemics, economic health um, actually converging on us all at once that forced people to actually pay attention and look and not just be able to keep it going and have it be a 24-hour news story. We were bombarded with that all day, every day, and actually forced to reckon with the horrible state of uh, the way uh, Black people are treated in this country. Yeah, and the only thing, I, and in addition to the, to everything that Laurie said, and I completely agree, I think also what was kind of different is that people talked about it being a moment, right? And that the conversation had been had in very isolated um, uh, conversations in the back room. And so being able to visually internalize some of the what people had been saying for a long time. And that's why we wanted to really actually kick this off conversation about the implicit bias, because inherently in the things that you don't say or don't show up for, these are the things that inevitably affect your decision making and you don't even know what's happening. So whereas in 2016, it seemed very obvious that Colin Kaepernick was not in the mainstream, but by 2020, as Lori suggested, our world had been upended. Everything that we knew to be true had changed and been taken. And so that caused everybody to kind of really look at ourselves, what's important, what matters, it's your family, it's it's how you show up in the world, are you doing good? Um, and so I think that became kind of the impetus because people were concerned, was this gonna be a moment or a movement? Yeah, and, and, and I'll, I'll chime in on that. You know, we have a theme about, you know, diversity and the business case, and we'll get into that later in the discussion. But, you know, I, I also thought about it you know, from the NFL's perspective of textbook way to ha- mishandle a situation. Like, you know, you had an employee who was peacefully and quietly, you know, protesting, kneeling. And last time I you kneeled to pray, but I guess that just offended the world. You know, taking a position where the majority of your workforce are people of color and the issue that he was kneeling for resonated with them. I know they got some outside pressure and ratings dropped for a bit, but that's something, you know, I think if they probably had more people, you know, from diverse backgrounds on the, in decision making in terms for an organization, they could have weathered that. Because what you see now is them spending $250 million for all these other programs, you know, another $44 million you know, allocated towards, you know, diversity related programs. But really, people kind of look at them like you really don't mean it. Right. So you don't have the credibility just simply because you, you didn't listen to one of your employees raise this issue. They they mishandled it when they had to take note when some of their future up and coming stars, including Patrick Mahomes, who's going to be the face of the league for the next 10 years, along with a number of other prominent players, did their own commercial without the NFL knowing, saying this issue is important. So you had to understand, like, oh, we have an issue, you know, just in terms of running your business. You know, to me, I just thought like this is the perfect way to mishandle this situation. Right. And even when you try to do something and allocate dollars, which is great, people really don't believe it because, hey, you're still blackballing Kaepernick from the league. You still didn't have a job. And, you know, and I think about it from Kaepernick perspective is like when sometimes you have people trying to raise these issues from the whole system of things. or It could be a corporate system. It could be in government trying to counsel you out. You know, this guy was like a couple of years removed from the Super Bowl. So he can't play anymore. He can't make a roster on any team all of a sudden. And they were trying to make an example. And other players have come out afterwards and said, you know, we felt we we agree with them, but our livelihood was at stake. You know, we had families and children. And that's the way the kind of system keeps you quiet and kind of keeps the same status quo going over and over and over again until it reaches a, you know, a point where it can't continue that way. So I think a case study 
can be done for an organization perspective of how to mishandle something, look at how the NFL completely mishandled this situation. Lori, do you agree? And how did you feel when he took a knee? I mean, I'm sure you remember. Well, I absolutely remember. Um, and, and once I understood, probably like most people, the first time I watched it, if you hear you heard the initial hubbub, they, you know, they were trying to spin it and say that it was about the flag. And then when you just did a, just a little surface digging and you found out it wasn't, um, that he was he was intending to make a statement about the way black people were treated by the police. I absolutely supported it. And to Robert's point, wondered why is it that if you try to peacefully speak up for marginalized people being mistreated, that you could be vilified in that way. But yet, you know, prior to 2020, to George Floyd's murder, that's exactly what would happen. And that's exactly what chills the speech and makes people not want to speak up when microaggressions happen to them at work or when people, you know, call you by everyone else's name that's a Black person in your firm but your own, because to them, you're just you're just a Black unit. You're not anybody separate from anybody else. You know, all those indignities that we suffer to the point of, you know, having to be eight minutes and 46 seconds with a knee on your neck, um, like you do to an animal. You don't even treat an animal that bad. PETA would, would also vilify you. But that it took that during a pandemic for people to actually stop and look and think about and absorb and feel. And to Rashida's point, think about what might you be doing or not doing to try to deal with this. So I felt all of that. So Rashida, you're new in your position, reasonably new in your position as a diversity officer. But from your prior time at Deloitte on the spectrum, where do you fit all of this together? That's a great question, Barbara. And I think really thinking about over the last couple of years, I've really been focusing on really understanding what the business case is for diversity, particularly when working with clients. Um, A lot of the work I was doing from a consulting perspective was helping clients, particularly law firms or in-house, figure out how do you develop a panel? How do you figure out what is the best outside counsel structure? So whether that is the geographic diversity or even just thinking about the capabilities of the practice. And so one of the things that I think has been resonated over the last couple of years, particularly within corporations and management consulting, is that diversity is a business mandate, but it should also be a personal mandate. And so what I think we're starting to see is the convergence of the business mandate with the personal mandate. And so McKinsey and Company came out in May 19, 2020, ironically, just two weeks before George Floyd was murdered and talked about diversity wins. It's a great report, How Inclusion Wins. And I believe it's one of the materials that we've shared with this group. And it talks about the representation and how having diverse teams outperform teams that are homogeneous. And one of the reasons why they um, say that happens is because Diverse teams tend to bring you outside of your comfort zone. So that means that the whole team is able to see the blind spots because usually when you're really focused, everybody's bringing their experiences, they're bringing their knowledge, but there are a lot of gaps within that knowledge that you're not seeing. And so therefore being able to understand and walk in someone else's shoes and think about it, how the perception, particularly when we think about diversity, equity, inclusion, and how that shows up each and every day in how you're um, actually affecting your business. So those are the ways in terms of like really permeating thinking about it really can't be just it's the right thing to do. It's the business case to do. But whatever it is, you're not going to have longevity in whatever you're doing if you're not thinking about the succession planning and the diversity strategy within that. So, Robert, as the chief diversity officer at Gibbons, how do you make the business case for diversity? Well, you know. You got to keep in line that like law firms, like most businesses are are for profit. And if you want to make anything sustainable and long term, you have to weave it into an economic argument. Right. Or or, or business case for it. Right. Because, you know, everyone is not going to be people from different backgrounds and diversity is not going to be important to some people. That's just a fact. Right. Otherwise, we'd be right where we need to be right now in society. However, I do know one thing that's consistent in for-profit entities is the business of making money. And if you can demonstrate how diversity can benefit this organization in terms of attracting new talent, 
making better decisions, appealing to new clients, tapping into new client bases that you traditionally couldn't tap into before. If you can kind of make management understand that this is an economic reason, not just a corporate social responsibility um, reason for diversity, because, you know, it makes us feel good or it's the latest trend. You know, we actually, if we can make it an economic argument, we can weave it into the culture of that institution. And that's what the goal is, right? And, you know, just from my time being on the planet, I think everyone understands how to make money. So that's the, that's why I try to keep my focus in Edward Perino. So you've done that through pro bono and through other kinds of outreach. Explain what you've done in your firm. Yeah, after a good example, we did a partnership with the Institute for Entrepreneurial Leadership. Um, they're based out of Newark. They have a kind of, they're similar to like an accelerator program for early stage and startup companies with a focus of women of color founded businesses or controlled businesses. So that's their investment focus. You know, we entered into a partnership with them. If you're running us, you know, most entrepreneurs know at the early stage, you have limited dollars and you especially have limited dollars for lawyers, right? We provide the whole suite of legal services that this firm offers on a pro bono basis to these businesses, right? And, you know, that can be a feel-good initiative, but we also put kind of the economic weight behind it because at a law firm, the billable hour is the thing that kind of keeps you in your chair, right? And it justifies you being in your chair. So we give 50 hours billable credit for working on these matters, right? And so that's the thing that goes towards your, your number that you need to hit at the end of the year. 50 of those hours can be devoted towards pro bono work towards these businesses. And how I sell that to the firm, I'm saying like, look, these are businesses. You know, if we use the venture capital model where they invest in 40 different companies and maybe three of them go public, at some point in time, these businesses that we're helping out are going to get seed financing, Series A financing, and guess who they're going to turn around and need for corporate counsel, right? You know, this is, I mean, I'm just not like a charity. We're helping these companies stand out, stand up because A, they're, they're traditionally denied access to all types of funding, like 99.9% of, of dollars, VC dollars don't go to women of color or people of color business at, at all anyway, right? So we're taking one of those economic pressures off their plate and helping them out. So by the time they get funding, then they'll be in a position to actually hire us and pay our legal fees. So that's one example. That's a super strategy. I love that. Lori, so you've recently been selected to the firm's executive committee or board of directors. I don't know exactly the title. What does Carlton Fields do in terms of advancing diverse talent into management or other executive roles? And what was your path? So I think for me, uh, it's, it's an interesting path for me personally. I actually was going to leave the firm at a, I think it was a third year. I actually still have the letter that I submitted when I gave my two-week notice. And it was nothing other than the study that the ABA does every, gosh, two or three years, right? That visible invisibility that particularly as a woman of color, but certainly as a minority in big law, that you often can get lost in the shuffle. Majority lawyers tend to not know what to do with you. They don't know how to relate to you. And then all the private conversations that happen, the way work gets handed out, the great opportunities, they don't come to you and you start to feel very isolated. So that was what I felt. I knew I was capable of doing much more, but just couldn't find a path, couldn't find a way to do it. So I was going to leave. And so in doing that, though, it finally brought me to my current CEO's attention. He asked around to find out why. And supposedly the beat on me was that I didn't work very hard, which made absolutely no sense. As I said, I was a college division one athlete, got a scholarship <laughs> to pay for all of my education, got a scholarship to law school, top of my class, top 10% in law school, clerk for the 11th circuit. But when I get to Carlton Fields, I'll be lazy and I won't work hard. It makes no sense. And I said that to him in a much less aggressive way than what I just said, <laughs> but basically said that this is crazy. That's not me. I you know, expressed to him my frustration and he said, fine, I will, if that is what it is, I will get you a different opportunity. And it made all the difference. I switched practice groups, found sponsors, people who believed in me, who helped me, who supported me. And here I sit now, you know, and that's a wonderful success story. Maybe, you know, and so the success story will become when I can help others do that too. So to your question, so what am I doing? One of the things from last year, I asked for additional DEI training for our leadership because it can't just be those narrow pockets of one or two or three people who listen and pay attention and understand and help. It needs to be widespread and you have to bring these things to people's attention because most times it's not overt. It's that unconscious bias. It's the implicit bias that we don't realize that we have the blind spots that can tank people's careers. 
So that's one way that I'm doing it. And then also just pouring into recognizing and being accessible to others in the firm to try to to listen. I've shared with this group when we did our prep sessions about, you know, being aware of my own blind spots and biases. For me, millennials, they confound me. I don't understand them. The participation trophy, all of that, Um, you know, and, and I joke about it and laugh with them so that they know they can come to me and let me know if I'm missing things or if I'm not including them. And so I, I try to make an intentional effort to bring them to the table because they're the future. And just because they approach things differently doesn't mean it's bad. We need to innovate and recognize and, and incorporate them in if we want to survive and continue to be profitable. So I just try to disrupt and agitate in a respectful way, but in a way that always makes the business case, because at the end of the day, as we've all said, we are for-profit institutions and we want to we want to reflect customers that we want to have and they want us to reflect what they have. So I'm just, I just try to keep bringing that to the forefront and um, carrying the flag. So you said in one of our practice sessions that because of your CEO behaving in a manner, it's really top down in your firm. I mean, that person is setting a really great example. Do you think it would make a difference if you didn't have that individual as a CEO? Absolutely. Um, How do and you I think th- it would be different? I think it's hard. Um, you know, race is something in this country that certainly until last year, it was difficult to talk about. It's still difficult to talk about now. But if you don't have commitment from the top down, who sees it as a priority, who recognizes how we can be better, how we innovate better, then the pockets where people don't want to discuss it and think it's not important and are not interested in it, it can permeate an entire firm. It can really um, make the culture a cesspool, right? It can really make it an unwelcome and exclusive environment such that people that are different and diverse are going to very quickly realize that they're not welcome there. But if it comes from the top down, really is an initiative that it's important and this is what we're going to do, then the complete opposite happens, right? Then everybody understands that it's going to be inclusive and that they are going to only support things that allow that to happen. We recently had the training that I mentioned this week at our firm, and we learned about a lot of different scenarios and even situations where CEOs were saying they would not attend any sort of committee or group meeting unless the people in the room were diverse. Those are the types of things that leaders can do to insist on what they want to happen. Um, So I think when the priorities come from the top down like that, it forces it and until it definitely becomes the culture and the environment of the firm or the company. So Rashida, do you think that it's wise to bring in an outside trainer or to do it in-house or how would you deal with that issue? I think it's a, it's a combination of both. So particularly with my firm, my firm had had a longstanding DEI committee that was charged with coming up with a strategic plan as well as the different initiatives. And then in 2020, what basically prompted the need to have a chief diversity officer was that the fact that we needed someone who could be dedicated full-time, who understood, who had, you know, because I had practiced law, who understood the dynamics of the legal practice, who understood how to connect with clients and could understand how to facilitate an environment where people felt like they could speak up. And I think really what resonates with me from both Lori and what Rob said during our prep sessions even today is that a lot of times that isolation comes and then you're losing good talent. And a lot of times what's not measured is the dollar value associated when you have good talent leave the door and you're not really advancing the ball within your organization. So when you're coming to training, it's very important. There are two aspects I feel like are really important that organizations, particularly law firms can focus on. So one from a implicit bias standpoint, how are we grading performance? How are we identifying who are the rock star associates who are going to elevate, who get the best opportunities, who get the exposure, who have the opportunity to kind of develop their brand and their book of business and can accelerate? And then the other part is where we're thinking about from a standpoint being strategic, where is the firm going and how is the management committee or executive committee really thinking about the type of firm that they want to have and how do we impart that culture? And so what's really helpful is having a combination because I do think that you need the benefit of someone who understands your organization and can apply best practices to your organization. And that's what's great about having a consultant come in and see the blind spots or the gaps that you may not ordinarily be able to see on a day-to-day basis. But in order for that to really work, you need to have somebody internally who can champion 
all of those lessons learned because there's no point to bring in training and everybody checks the box and then we just go about our next day. You have to have somebody as as Lori said, the agitator, right? Someone who's there, who's going to keep everyone accountable to what people committed to. Because I think in general, I mean, as we've all said, these are all work-for-profit businesses, but also we have a really demanding demanding career path, right? It's a demanding industry. Clients have needs right now. And so sometimes that right now will take the most good intention, well-meaning individual, but deviate because you're not really focused on the fact that you need to make sure that from a leadership standpoint, are people getting the training and that so your diverse professionals or people who are racially ethnic diverse are not feeling it's their responsibility to educate the whole firm. They're also trying busy, trying to be excellent lawyers. And so it is a lot to ask of them to also be able to also leverage your, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion efforts for free when that's not really part of their job description. So do your clients sometimes dictate the staffing of matters to be with a diverse group? Does that ever happen? Yes. And I feel like what we've seen is a significant impact. I mean, we've seen general counsels come out, similar like the general counsel for Coca-Cola being very explicit. Um, the general counsel HP talked about, I'm not going to pay firms if their matters are not diverse. And there's a lot of effort with um, corporations looking at the timekeepers, who's on my matters, how is the demographics for the matters I, I'm working on? Who gets origination credit for that particular matter? How are they elevating in the firm? And I think there's more conversations from the corporate standpoint of saying, firms, what are you doing? But then I also talked about it should be a partnership because what we really want from the corporation, I need you to send my firm significant amount of work so that I can get the training for my younger staff or mid-level or junior partners so they can be able to bring themselves to the table with respect to how they're staffing their matter. So people are getting meaningful, not just the hours, but the meaningful experience that makes you a great lawyer. So let's turn to the subject Lori raised it before of implicit bias. So Lori, do you want to take the lead to explain what that means, please? No, because we agreed Rashida was going to give the definition because she's really good at it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Go. Either one of you. Yes. So Talk amongst yourselves. Go. Yes. So according, there is an actual textbook definition when we talk about implicit bias. It, we all have biases. We all have implicit bias. And, and what makes implicit bias so you know dangerous and hard to quantify, it doesn't show up in a way that you can articulate. You can't really put your finger on exactly what it is, but it influences your decision-making. So specifically, most people really don't always know what your bias is. And Lori talked about millennials. And I know for me, sometimes it is, you know, certain ways that people may do things and then you're not really thinking about it. And the problem why implicit bias is, particularly when we think about law, we think about how it shows up in the U.S. is that tied with the implicit bias with respect to Black professionals or Black lawyers is that there is also historical systematic racist construct in terms of understanding U.S. history and understanding how the evolution of, you know, original Africans who were in slavery became citizens in a, in a position. And that history is not lost in how people show up. I think we also talked about a little bit in implicit biases. And a great example is there was some research done. And I don't know if people have heard it. It's like the two memos. And so we have the same memo. It has a it specifically has certain typos in the memos. The, you change the names. One was appeared to be would give the impression that it was a white male that wrote the memo. And then the second memo was given to a group to evaluate that implied that maybe it was a woman or maybe it was a woman of color or something in that, that dynamic. The based on the name, right? Based, based on the on name. The name. Mm -hmm. And the feedback that came back from the memos was very striking. So mind you, as I as I stated, the typos in both memos were the same. But the feedback from the young white male that was perceived to be, you know, be just based on the name was this person, you know, has a great career path. They're going to be phenomenal. Great lawyer. The feedback for what was perceived to be a woman of color was 
I don't know how this person went to law school. They can't write. They should really think about a new career path. I don't think they're going to be successful at all. And it showed up because even before the person even looked at the memo, they had already shaped their experience by just looking at the names. And I think for those who may be Georgetown Law School alum out there, you may have seen how that showed up last week because it actually went viral with respect to a professor, an adjunct faculty who's no longer with Georgetown and a tenured faculty who's also no longer with Georgetown and found themselves on a recorded Zoom call. And at the end of the call at the meeting, because the meetings are all recorded on Zoom and then posted for the students to access after the class, one of the adjunct faculty talked about how every semester her Black students are just poor performers and she's so frustrated by it and she doesn't know why all of the Black students she has are poor performers. Her colleagues sat there on the Zoom call and didn't say anything. And so as a result of that, what transpired is the dean had to step in and, you know, announced that she was terminated and then put the other faculty member on um, an investigation. But that's such a great example of how it shows up, because as you know, in order to get to a firm, people look at your grades. And so your grades are very important. So now what is the dean supposed to do? Are all those students supposed to get A's? I mean, what about her students beforehand? So that's why it's problematic when you don't really address implicit bias head on. I think that was a very long answer. Well, what interested me most, and Robert and I chatted about this last night, actually, was that her course was on negotiation. And to me, if you're going to be teaching negotiation, you need to learn how to sort of live in the other person's shoes. That's kind of the most important thing. Robert, why don't you address what you told me last night? Yeah, absolutely. Before I do that, I just want to point out something because Lori raised it like when she first started and she before she moved to different practice groups. And, you know, she's been so accomplished and all of a sudden she's lazy and can't work. Right. And, you know, I mean, it, it, it's absurd, because, but it's the same with that professor. Right. You know, she's like, well, some of my students are good, but when I always look, it's always a black one. And it's, it's, it goes to that programming in your brain of what to expect, because with that study about the memo, the takeaway was if you expect to find errors, you will find them. And if you expect those errors to be associated with black people, they will be associated with black people. It'll be like confirmation bias, right? And I just want to point that out because, you know, her firm could have let a fantastic attorney walk out the door because mm-hmm. for whatever reasons, you know, the law firm is an apprentice model, right? You need to, you know, as smart as you are, but you need someone to show you how to do your job. For some reason, that person who was required to give her work thought that she was lazy and not working hard, which is absurd. So that's why I'll that point. But when I spoke with you last night, it was more about, you know, I really would wanted to see because there are people who are against all of this inclusion and equality. We we have to keep that in the back of our of the context, right? Who are fighting against this. I would have liked to seen like any some follow-up, you know, like, well, what with someone asking her a question, and what are you doing? If those students are so bad, what are you doing to help get them up to par, right? That's your job. What are they missing? Are you having a conversation with them? And then they're they're continuing to fail, you know, because what the problem is when I saw that clip, I was like, this is going to end up on Fox and they're going to probably interview and say, this is part of the council culture. Right. And then we get back in the same loop of no one talking about it. And, you know, maybe she might show up like I got fired because I said something that was true, which is not true. Right. It was just certain places. But, you know, and we get we get caught up in the same loop and, and loop over and over again. Um, I would have loved to see some follow up questions to see if she could better articulate herself in terms of what she meant there, because when people lose their jobs. And, you know, I'm not I'll never root for people to lose their job. But because, you know, if she loses her job, she's going to take that way in whatever next law school that she goes to. And it's, it's locked in now. And the point is to kind of unwind that. So, and I think with implicit bias training, you have to intentionally unwind that because we all have our own, it's not just training for white men, for example, right? I've gone through a number of these and I realized that I have a bunch of them and I have to intentionally learn to not think that way because based on where I grew up, Waco, Texas, at least to me to this day, you have to intentionally stop thinking that way. That just, you know, was in the back of my mind. I just thought it was unfortunate because hopefully maybe it'll come back around. It could be a potential teachable moment with her where she's involved. 
not just a punishment. She goes away and she just harbors this resentment and it's heaven forbid for the next black law student that she has to deal with for a great, that person's great. So. So what's the trajectory? What are the statistics showing on diversity? Improvement, static, worse? Modest, modest improvement for, so NALP just released its recent 2020 report and it said the percentage of black associates just surpassed 5% for the first time since they've been tracking these numbers. The overall percentage is a third of a percentage point to 3.31 with respect to LGBTQ attorneys. Despite the modest growth, Black women and Latino women represent less than 1% of all partners. So that means 99% of all partners are not Black women or Latino. But the percentage of equity partners of color has shown some improvement, again, at a 0.1, which was 0.4% to 4.5. And it seems to be a very slow and painful trajectory. I think with numbers like that, organizations have to be bold. You have to say, by 2025, we want to increase by 50%. And then work backwards. What does that mean? Who's in your pipeline? Who have you identified? Who could be the rock stars? Or what if they're not there yet. What are the experiences, the opportunities that we need to do to position them? Because I think there's a misnomer, I think, with implicit bias and all the things we're talking about is that somehow there's not enough of the pie. We just need to make a bigger table so then more people can come. So there's not a shrinkage. There's really more opportunity and there's more opportunity if we just all are able to like Shirley Chisholm always say, just pull up a chair if there wasn't one there for you. And so the numbers... You know, Barbara, I, I think from a gender perspective, we're doing better, but not are we really doing better? Because right now law schools will tell you they're graduating 50, 60 percent women. But the number for women is not, you know, it's still in the the tens or twenties in terms of partners as well. So there's a lot of work to do. I don't think we should look at it as a negative. I think there's a lot of opportunity as well. Lori, you used a word earlier, microaggression. Could you explain that, please, and then explain how that affects the professional careers of diverse attorneys? Ooh, and I'm not the definitional person. Rashida can probably say the definition, but I can tell you it's things such as one that always comes to mind for me because I literally sit on the 10th floor behind our um, receptionist, and we usually have our um, a lot of gatherings when when it wasn't COVID times um, in a beautiful lobby we have out there. And so one of my partners who happens to be an African-American woman, she's on the ninth floor, so I don't see her very often. And so she came up for this reception. And so I went over to greet her and started talking to her. And we probably were talking for maybe 60 seconds or a minute. And one of our majority male colleagues came over and says, oh, what is this? The Black people are getting together and talking. Are you guys going to mutiny? Is it, I mean, you just, and we're just literally looking at him like, Oh my gosh, like we're just talking. Like the fact that we both happen to be black doesn't mean that we're planning a coup. It doesn't mean that we're going, I mean, you see where I'm going with this, right? That's a microaggression. Why? Because we're two black women. Can't we talk? You don't say that when two white men talk. You don't say it when two white women talk. You don't say it when a white man and a woman talk. But you look at us and what you see is color. And then that's what you jump to. And so the not being seen, that's a type of microaggression. You hear it a lot of times um, about, you know, don't touch a woman's hair, a black woman's hair in particular, you know, just treating someone like an object, like they're not truly a person. You would never do that to a white person. So why would you do it to me? Those types of things start to minimize you and start to make you feel like you don't matter and that you're not viewed as an attorney there to grow and, and develop a career just like everyone else. You start to realize that, Truly, people just see you as an object, as a thing, as a number to check off on a box. And that can be just personally humiliating. I think Rashida and I actually connected on the whole. There was a time when we actually had three, I believe, African-American women in our Tampa office. We would regularly have the mail room deliver the other person's mail to us. We look nothing alike. <laughs> we're not in the same practice group. But again, we're just... The black woman, just hand the black woman a piece of mail for the black woman. And so if that's how I'm viewed, what are the chances that people are actually to the apprenticeship model taking me on to, to train me? You know, they don't they don't differentiate me from the next person. So it gets to the moment that we're having of the inclusiveness. We talked about, you know, the adage that I, that I say very often, that a lot of people say about 
you know, diversity is inviting people to the party. Inclusion is asking them to dance. And that's a great way to think of it because we all were middle school, high school awkwardness at a dance. You're standing along the wall, you're whatever. And, and, and you can kind of get that, right? Like you're there, but you really wish you could be invited out to really be a part of it, to really be included and get to have some fun and do some things. That's the moment. That's what we're struggling with. And if we can't have conversations and talk about what we don't understand, we're never going to bridge that gap. Um, and I probably got away from your microaggression, but I wanted to get out my analogy. Well, I think it's good. Robert, do you want to weigh in on this on microaggressions as well? Yeah, and I, you know, I think Lori kind of captured in essence what it is. You know, they're different, right? You can't, it's, it's so many different things. And, and also people perceive different type of aggressions. I'm, I'm from the South. I perceive different aggressions from someone who's from the North, in fact, right? But, you know, I think it's important for an organization to know what their employees of color bring in from the outside world into the office, right? Because, you know, it could be concerns about driving while black. You know, we use that because we're talking about um, Floyd, but like all these external pressures as you come into the office, that person may have thought that he was making a joke to Lori about two black people talking, but that's enough to push you over the edge, right? When you happen to deal with all this stuff, because, you know, I think the world may have just, you know, become aware of police treating black people different in 2020 black people have been knowing this forever right <laughs> so like, oh you back i've seen way worse videos than that personally um so, but you take this stuff into the office you know and certain little things are always triggered but you know you have to always keep a level head you can't you know i'm black male i, I can't really yell at people because it'll be perceived a different way I, I some attorneys can slam the you know fist on the desk I know that I can never do that, right? Or if they say certain things, you know, as an associate, you know, as a partner says different things. When I was a, coming up the associate track, I know that I can't react in certain ways. So, and I, a lot of times I, people probably aren't even aware that they're doing these microaggressions. I think majority of the time they don't know, right? Which is why implicit bias training is so important, you know, but, you know, it makes it difficult. And that's it's one of the main reasons why that number of percentage of, of attorneys of color is so low at these firms, right? Because not because you're not capable, it's just after a while, people just don't want to deal with it. And if you're a smart person, you have other options and firms need to be aware of that. So, so Robert, I want to segue into a word that you've given me many times in these talks. We're going to talk about how we can improve and achieve some successes here. And you use the word intentional all the time. Right. Um, yeah, you know, there are different types of organizations. It's not a one policy fits all for, for these DNI initiatives. But whatever you do, you should be intentional about it, right? In particular, law firms are intentional about what they do all the time, right? A new law comes out, they adjust, right? <laughs> and they, they put an alert about, like, you know, you know, they, a new practice area comes out. We might acquire a different firm, but hire our attorneys with this particular practice area. We're intentional about trying to get this business. I think, you know, you should look at improving diversity the exact same way, probably more importantly, right? Because you can fix this if you're intentional about it. You know, there are different policies. You, and you can have an outside consultant come in and, and, and tell you everything that you as an organization need to do to improve in this area. But if you're not intentional and if it's just like, oh, this is a trend that's going to pass in a couple of years, let's just be on the right side of the trend right now, then odds are your initiatives are going to fail. Right. You know, um, you have to be intentional in, in an apprentice model of making sure associates or attorneys of color are successful. They were successful enough for you to hire them. They're not all of a sudden not qualified. Right. You know, you, if something's not working, it's incumbent upon you as the organization to fix that. You know, you just can't say like, well, they weren't reaching their hours. Well, it's not their job to bring in hours. <laughs> as long as they're not turning down work. Right. Why aren't you giving them work? And if it's a problem, why don't you address it immediately? You know, so, you know, whatever you do, and we can all talk about different programs, at the base of that, it has to be intentional and we really mean it, right? And I think if you really mean it, whatever you do will be successful, um, so. So we have a question that I'll pose to the panel and it's, it's excellent. What advice do you give to minority firm members to assist particularly obtuse firm members in the inclusion effort? Who wants to jump on that? 
Rashida? Yes, I'm happy to repeat the question. I have to get to it. What advice do you give to minority firm members to assist particularly obtuse firm members in the inclusion effort? So my approach is I recognize that you're going to have allies, you're going to have key stakeholders, and you're going to actually have some people who are just not going to get on the train. They're just not going to get on board. What I find is if you can make a coalition of the ones who are willing and not sure, they didn't know before and they want to get educated and they've been looking to you know provide that opportunity, it's the majority. You have to be careful about that the small minority, so to speak, or the vocal minority, so to speak, despite what the hesitation they may have. Because I think what what happens is really before 2020, I think one of the things that maybe as a you know black attorney and even myself as a black professional, when I was you know in those environments, we would just show up to work, right? So there would be a mass shooting on the weekend. There would be something horrible, some video. We would just show up to the work smiling. One, that does everybody um, an injustice because what really happens is we weren't allowing those conversations about race and being very transparent. And in a way, in an effort to try to make things very separate and comfortable, as a result, the conversations are not being had. So now in terms of, like Rob can go and ask that question, well, we brought this associate in and they're not having their hours, why? You know, start asking the why questions. And so when you have people who seem to be resistant, I think you start having to kind of think about it like a deposition and you have to start asking the why questions. Because a lot of times if they're not able to answer, then you start to uncover other things that are probably not related to why they're uncomfortable with diversity. Some of it is fear. And if people operate from a place of fear, That makes it very difficult to be intentional, as well as to get any progress on trying to advance the the conversation. I think the conversations move from, as Lori said, you know, diversity is going to the dance, you know, being asked to go to the dance, someone asking you to dance. But the conversation we've been missing all along is the equity. So now that I'm at the dance, someone's asked me to dance. Do I have the right shoes? Right. Like if everybody's in tap dance shoes and I'm in sneakers. That's not equity. So I think this is the part that's been missing from the conversation. And I think that's where you start to ask the why and figuring out the equity. Barbara, I think the other thing, the only thing I would add to that, I totally agree. I want to pick up on the piece where Rashida said, if some people are just, they're not going to adapt to this, right? They're not interested. They don't want to have anything to do with it. They only want an affinity bias, right? They only want people that look just like them. There's that meme that people, some people may have seen, you know, if you took a photo of me and, and then took a, a replica of me and had me walking in the door, shaking my hand saying, hi, nice to meet you, Lori. I think you're going to be great here. You're going to be a great success. Why? Because it's me, right? What I can see reflected back, I understand, I can relate to, I believe in, I will give you chances to make mistakes. And I totally relate to you. You're just like me. When you're different, sometimes people get uncomfortable, right? Like I had to learn that people, they just didn't know how to relate to me. And they, if they weren't willing to take that first step, then I was going to have to do it. I had to make them realize that just like them, I have aging parents too that I stress about and I worry about. Um, Just like you, I'm looking to buy a house. You know, I bleed as well when I'm, you know, cut. So I had to find connection points to help, even though it shouldn't be my burden, to help people be comfortable and realize that there's really a lot more that we have in common than what you see in, in a black face and that I'm a woman, right? One of my partners that I work with a lot here in the construction department, he's from a small town called Crystal River. I'm from a small town called Crestview, both in Florida. They could basically be the same town. I mean, like his, you know, he's shown me pictures of his dad playing softball with tube socks pulled up to his knees. I then show him a picture with my black dad doing the same thing. Like we've lived the same life, um, you know, and, but it, it took us being able to have those conversations to realize the commonalities that we had and that we like each other and we enjoy each other's company. And then guess what? He'll invest in me. And then he wants to give me those opportunities and I'm allowed to grow and thrive as we want all, you know, associates to do and grow up into partners. But sometimes it just takes figuring out what the discrepancy is and the lack of bridging of gaps there. And sometimes, unfortunately, it does take the people of color being a little more intentional and trying to help that happen if the people are willing and open to it. So I warned you guys that I might bring up Toni Morrison, right? 
And for the fellows, Toni Morrison has written a book called The Origin of Others, which traces through American literature patterns of thought and behavior that subtly code who belongs and who doesn't, and who's accepted and who is cast out as other. So we belong and they do not belong. Can you tell us how that resonates for you and what you recommend as your words of wisdom? Because we only have a couple minutes left. Who wants to go first? Anyone? Anyone? Bueller? I'll go first, bro. <laughs> okay. Um, by the way, which is like my favorite movie of all time. And sometimes when you say that to the millennials, they the Bueller thing, you get blank stares. Yeah. <laughs> So then you know that you've aged yourself. But I think that's such an important concept about the who is the we and who is the they, because that's the ultimate implicit bias, that you showing up in an environment, you believe I'm showing up here, I'm ready to work, I belong. But the people around you who have to mentor you, provide you that apprentice, as Rob shared, and, and train you to be, because that was always why I, I've always heard why it's called the practice of law, because you're continuing to practice. Um, but if you don't have people who can see your potential, you don't know what you don't know. And no matter how open you are, and you know, I'm glad that Lori's story turned out the way it did, but there are far too many other, you know, women or other people of color whose stories just did not end up that way, that somebody was not willing to take a chance because they didn't say that they belonged. It almost kind of says it's like kind of the evolution from if you don't think that somebody belongs, you're not going to invest, you're not going to open the door, you're not going to give them chances. Um, and so it actually robs all of us when we have this us and them, as opposed to recognizing we're here all for the collective good, and we can only do that together. Robert, what do you think about that? Yeah, yeah, no, I, I mean, I agree with all that. You know, sometimes, I think I may have said this when in the practice session, you know, we have to recognize that when, in the context of law firms, when these institutions were first created, they did not contemplate Rashida, Lori, myself, you, Barbara, being there, right? So as we go through time, it's gonna be, we're dealing with like a shift in society where, you know, it used to be civil rights, right? And civil is just like, you can come in this restaurant and. You know, I can't spit on you all. Now we're asking for equal rights, right? In a, a, a lot of everything with what we do, not civil, not being nice, equal. And as a society, we're constantly grappling with this every day. And in the context with, with the law firms, you, you see the numbers and it's been modest improvement. They're not reflective of <laughs> what society is. So why is that? In dealing with people who don't want it's, it. I'm aware that there are people who like how it is. And so I don't let that frustrate me, you know, the way to kind of roll over a person like that is, you know, you know, for the corporations, you know, who kind of give work and put these outside supply diversity, you know, make sure you give origination matters to minority partners in that firm because you help that person then build that person's book of business and that person has power to just roll over that person being obtuse, right, versus trying to work around that person being obtuse. You know, we're not there and it's, the numbers reflect it. But, you know, from your hiring committee and, and uh, you know, people who may say, oh, they're not a good fit and your firm looks a, <laughs> a certain way and it's a one way. Right. You know, it's, it's some self-reflection to get rid of that we versus they, because, you know, you're missing out on a lot of talented people who can make your organization, which is for profit, a lot of money. Right. And can tap into markets and appeal to certain clients that maybe traditionally that your organization couldn't tap into. So, um, you know, that's my take on the we versus they. I think the only thing I would add, Barbara, um, the in the forum as well, and we had a diversity brunch earlier today, and Yolanda Cash Jackson, who's an African-American woman, a lobbyist in the state of Florida, and one of the statements she made I could so relate to because she said she spent the first few years of her career trying to be a white male litigator 
because that's the model that's handed to you, right? Well, guess what? She's none of those things. And she also doesn't want to litigate. So she had to find her space. And so that's how awkward and terrible the otherness is, right? When you're constantly made to feel like you don't belong, you don't fit. One of the things that comes to mind for me is, is it, and it's hard as a young associate to then find your place. Certainly it helps if you can see yourself reflected back, which makes it important for people like us to be visible and to be a source. I'm a member of the Leadership Council on Legal Diversity as well. And so it's just a even if you don't know what it is, it has outside counsel and in-house counsel together and you're in a leadership class for a year. And so at the end of my year, one of the men from New York just kind of stood up and he was very emotional talking about how wonderful it was to be in this room of 130 diverse people. And his phrase literally at the end when he was very choked up is he said, I feel like I found my neighborhood. You know, like he found people where he wasn't an other anymore. You know, there were in-house counsel who actually looked like him, who wanted to send him business, who supported him. And so I guess I would just say, you know, also kind of support those things as well. It is important to have resource groups where we can learn how to not be a white male litigator and still be profitable for our company, right? There are still ways to do it. My colleague and I, the same one who we were talking and asked if we were, you know, planning a coup, we a few years ago took our our clients and potential clients to a Beyonce concert. And there was much hand-wringing. We were very nervous and scared when we put our plan together to ask our practice group leaders, you know, Lou Pratt, who's a member of the college, It took Lou all of two seconds to read my thing and say, yeah, okay. But I was nervous because I knew nobody had ever taken people to a Beyonce concert, but I made the business case for why I needed to do it. And indeed, I did need to do it. These people were great. So um, sometimes it just, you got to step out on faith and do some things. But uh, I know the three of us are always here to be sources of help. And this has been great. Thanks for having this conversation, Barbara. Well, you guys are amazing. I've been touting you guys for days, telling people how great you all are and the comments that are flooding in reflect that. So thank you all. You have been listening to Construction Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association's Forum on Construction Law. All rights relating to this podcast are owned and controlled by the American Bar Association. No reproduction or reuse of this podcast is permissible without the expressed written consent of the American Bar Association. For more information about Construction Law Today, or if you have any questions or comments, you may contact our host, Buzz Tarlow, jtarlow at lawmt.com. Our podcast is produced with the assistance of Peak Recording Studios in Bozeman, Montana. Thank you for listening and look for our next edition of Construction Law Today. Today.